This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm so thrilled to be with you every Sunday night to bring you the life stories of women from around the world who are doing some incredible things. Um, Our guest today, who will be with me in just a moment, is Dr. Luba Vinodagrova. She is an author and a researcher from Moscow originally, and she holds a PhD in microbiology. And we're going to be talking about her latest book, um, Avenging Angels. It's really a fascinating story. Um, As always, I want to say thank you to Jefferson University Hospital and Baird Financial for their very generous support and sponsorship of Women to Watch. And remind you all to stick around uh, later in the show. We will have our Health Watch with Dr. Marianne Ritchie of Jefferson University Hospital, who will be stopping by with some additional information to add from last week's segment around reflux, the dangers of reflux, and how we can treat it. Um, as always, be sure to visit our website to uh, stay in the loop on all things women to watch and check out our amazing lineup that's scheduled through June right now. Uh, we will have guests from IBM, SAP, Amerisource Bergen, and uh, a number of others. And um, lastly, just uh, be sure that you stick around at the end of the show. Uh, following mine, you'll be joined by Christine Flowers who comes up uh, after Women to Watch and is with you from 8 to 11 every Sunday night. So I'd like to get started right off the bat and welcome my very special guest to the show. Again, Dr. Luba Vinogradova, who is an author, researcher, and holds a PhD in microbiology from Moscow. Luba, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me, Susan. Yes, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you and to get to spend an hour uh, of your busy day here with me to talk about not only your your latest book, which really is so fascinating, um, but to share your own life story and, and what led you to do this work. So, I'm looking forward to it. Good. I, um, I want to just give the listeners a little bit of background. So you were born in Moscow in 1973. And um, mom and dad were both scientists. I, I was curious to know if, because of that, uh, was there hope for you to become a scientist as well? Uh, well, we did have writers in our family as well, but I, I never, never was particularly keen on writing. And, and um, in the 90s, when I joined the university, it was it, the the profession of a microbiologist was extremely popular. Uh, uh, it was a, it seemed very very exciting. Uh, people spoke about biotechnology, about genetic engineering, about growing meat in um, uh, in in artificial conditions. 
um, I still find it very exciting. Unfortunately, as I discovered later on, to be uh, to be a biologist, you you do need to be very very clever, very very good at maths and and chemistry, which uh, sadly I was not. So so you know my um, my best chance was to be a very mediocre scientist, unlike my parents. Well, I would say you must have some um, aptitude to have gone on to um, to receive your degree. I, I persevered. I uh, did not give up. I should have given up earlier on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you know, it's it's always interesting to me, people, um, particularly women who have uh, gifts in both the right and left brain, and you seem to be one of those women. Um, I think it's very kind. Uh, well, tell me about that moment when you made the decision to, to go and get a degree in English and German. What What kind of was the catalyst I, I sort of drifted to this. I always loved languages, and, and uh, in my family, um, uh, we, we, we were always aware of foreign languages. Even growing up in the Soviet Union, you know, with not much chance to speak English, I, um, I, I did learn it with my mom when I was a small child. And, um, and uh, so, so it was very, very natural to, to learn English, to take on French afterwards. And uh, then you know, if you if you're living in Russia in the 90s, uh, you need um, if you're taking a degree in science, you you do need to make a bit of money on the side. Otherwise, you just cannot exist on on you know on your scholarship. Uh, so I was always teaching English and I was always translating. And at some stage, you realize that it would be good to have a paper. Uh, some proof that you actually speak good English, that you can work as a, as a teacher of English, as a translator. Uh, by the way, uh, nobody ever saw, uh, ever saw my certificate and I never used it, but it was a great time. I, I, I had a great time studying English and German. Yeah. Was, would you say it was difficult to learn English? Um, it was not difficult. Uh, one just, you know, when I was a kid in my Soviet childhood, um, most people just did not see the point. It was a closed country, you know. Mm-hmm. Who do you speak English with? Right, yeah. Um, tell me, as a young girl, were you were you interested in writing? Um, I love stories. I, I, um, I always, still to this day, I much prefer reading to writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, reading is much more fun. Um, I don't know. Um, I think most of us as teenagers, when you're in love, you write some poetry, but, yes. but that was it for me. Right. Or songs, right? Songs or poetry when we're young girls. I'm not very musical. It was mostly poetry in my case. <laughs> um, you speak often of your friend and your mentor, Antony, uh, Antony, I should say. Uh, is it pronounced Beaver? Anthony. Yes, Antony Beaver. Beaver. How did you meet? Um, that was, once again, as many things happened in my life, it was a pure chance. Um, I was um, doing my PhD and, uh, and making some money on the side as a translator. And um, one day my cousin calls me and says, uh, says that an English historian is in Moscow and he's looking for somebody to interpret for him. He's doing research on the Second World War and he's going to 
going to go to Volgograd, which uh, which in the Soviet times was called Stalingrad. Um, and his name is Anthony Beaver. And um, I I had very vague uh, vague uh, knowledge of uh, of the Battle of Stalingrad, uh, shamefully. So so to me, working with Anthony on that project was an I. I uh, eye opening, you know, colossal experience. Um devastating as well because you you do learn a lot of things that that you know you think afterwards I, I'd rather not know that it's too painful. Mm, yes. Um and uh, and this is how it started and then I I I I helped him with several other books afterwards and I'm still working with Anthony to this day. I've been extremely lucky. Would you say it was fate that you that you met? Um, I'm quite cynical, Susan. I don't really believe in fate. Um, I think it was a chance, and and it was an extremely lucky chance. I I don't know where, which way my life would have turned uh, if uh, if I hadn't met Anthony. I I don't think I'd, I'd be writing my own books on history. Probably not. And, you know, what was it about him in particular that connected you to him, that made you want to continue to work with him? He loves people. Uh, he has a great empathy. And he is extremely intelligent. So so it's this unique combination of qualities that makes him such a, such a great historian, writing in the first place about the the human side the human experiences and in these great historical calamities mm. uh, i find this truly unique um um i i don't think i know any other writer who who does this as uh, as well as anthony does and i've been extremely privileged to to work with him well, I would say that you are one of those writers as well. And uh, we're, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to uh, start uh, to talk about the book and, um, and really what some of those life lessons were that you learned. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. I'm joined by Dr. Luba Vinogradova, an author, researcher, um, and holds a PhD in microbiology. We will be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by uh, Dr. Luba Vino Gradova, who is the author of Avenging Angels. And this uh, latest book is a story of young women who served as snipers during World War II. Um, you know, it's such an incredible story that one of the things I kept thinking about as I was reading it was why this story hasn't been told before. And perhaps it has, um, but not to the level one would think when you uh, consider what these young ladies went through. What do you think about that? Um, I was also astonished when I, when, uh, when I came upon the subject. Uh, this was a book that, that I myself proposed to the publisher. Nobody asked me to write this. I I I heard that there existed female snipers in the Red Army. I I started researching on them. I did not find a coherent serious book about them. I I just could not believe my luck. Mm. I was the first uh, first one I believe to write the write um um 
a more or less coherent uh, story in the historical context. Yeah, and I should mention um, for our listeners, uh, we're, we're talking about Avenging Angels, but you also just released uh, Defending the Motherland, which That's is right. another story of young women uh, from Russia who were fighter pilots. So two different story or two different books, I should say, um, but similar in their topic of of women serving in the uh, in the war. I you know I read a a quote by Antony Beaver, and I wanted to read it and then ask you a question. He said, there are things that are much too horrific to be put into a book. Um, So apparently there were things in all of his work as a historian that he left out. And I'm wondering if, you know, with your research and uh, the interviews that you did with some of the survivors, were there things that that you left out? And were there stories that kind of um, keep you up at night? Um. Yes, for sure. Um, and it's interesting how you you come to hear these stories. You would not hear them uh, in the course of an ordinary interview. Uh, some things that some things that people themselves think think are better let um, let out. You know, left out. Um, there comes a moment. There came a moment with some of these old women that I interviewed when suddenly. They cannot hold it inside any longer. They have to tell somebody. And I was extremely privileged to to be a person to whom they told, you know, like uh, like the woman uh, to whom I dedicated the Avenging Angels, uh, my friend Anna Sinikova. Um, I took her. It was slippery. Uh, one day there was ice in the street, and I said, I'll, I'll drive you to, to the clinic. She was going for some tests. And we sat there in the corridor, and I was I was um, I was texting somebody on my phone, and she said, "You know, put your phone down. I need to tell you something." And she starts telling me about the treatment of civilians in Germany by the Russian Soviet soldiers in um, in April 1945. Uh, and I was sure, um, uh, you know, these stories she she had never told anyone. And she was determined to never tell anyone. You just, you know, one day you reach a point when you have to. Mm. Um, you have to share. And um, and um, I, I feel a little bit guilty. She did say, don't put this in the book. And I did. Uh, she was gone by then. I did put part of them in the book. I, I thought they had to be. But not all of this. Not all of this. I, uh, um, they did keep me up at night. And how about even today? Do you think that, you know, doing a book like this and, and uncovering these stories so in such an intimate way, you know, having the ability to speak to these women uh, personally, is it something that you think you will keep with you always? Absolutely. Um, I, I started this research. I did research for, for both books simultaneously. Uh, which was quite a challenge, considering I I was having um, I kept having babies. Uh, both my girls were born during this research, um, but I knew I had to do this because people were in their late eighties already, and now they're all gone. Uh, and and I realized how extremely lucky I was to you know to 
to, uh, to have a chance to speak to them. Um, and for many of them, um, for many of these women, I was the first and the last person to ever interview them about their, their you know, unbelievable experiences during the war. Mm. Did you ever consider um, covering both groups of women within one book? Why, why the decision to do two separate books? Well, I think it's I think it's more logical to keep it separate. But in fact, um, um, the pilots joined the war very very early on. They they joined in October 1941, whereas the the snipers did not start fighting till 1943. So so in fact, I I consider the two books as as one. You know, as a uh, I consider the book on snipers as the continuation because it picks up the story uh, exactly where I le- uh, leave it in defending the motherland in mm. in, o- in August 1943, and I did come back on on, uh, um, on a few uh, in several fragments. I I did come back to the story of pilots in the book of snipers. So I don't know if it works very well, but I did come back to the story a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Women to Watch, and I'm joined today by Dr. Luba Vinogradova, the author of Avenging Angels and Defending the Motherland, and we're talking about the young women who I should mention were very very young. Um, it was surprising to me as well that many of them were not called out of the blue to serve they had already made decisions to train as uh, snipers. Tell me how, you know, in the culture, why that was something that was uh, pursued by women. Well, we should remember that uh, that the Soviet society of the 1930s was, was in the first place, a very, very militarized society. Uh, the popular slogan was, if you want peace, you need to prepare for the war. So uh, all the young people, we're talking about young people in towns, not in the countryside. The, uh, the countryside was a very different story. But in towns, people, young people, uh, almost all of them, joined this uh, sort of semi-sport, semi-military society called Oso Averhim. Uh, and train, you know, you could train as a pilot, you could train as a sharpshooter, um, um, chemical warfare um, defender. Uh, you you could acquire a military profession, and uh, and it was a very very popular thing to do. So um, and and um, uh, in the 1920s, 1930s, the Soviet Union proclaimed the absolute equality of sexes. So, uh, so it was a very normal thing for a woman to to master this, to learn this this you know um, male military professions. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, we're going to take another break. When we come back, I'd love to talk about how the women described being treated by the men that they were fighting with. Sure. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Women to Watch. I'm speaking this evening with Dr. Luba Vinogradova, who is the author of Defending the Motherlands and Avenging Angels, uh, fascinating stories about the young women who fought in World War II. And one of the things I think is particularly in today's climate, uh, a lot of people would be wondering is how the women were treated by the men that they were fighting with. 
Uh, how did they describe that to you? Well, uh, it's, uh, because I started with uh, with pilots, I, I uh, of course, it was a very different story. All these women were officers, um, so so they were treated quite well, I'd say, in the army, uh, and, and also aviators were an elite kind of troops. So uh, there was certain certain um, certain mistrust. Uh, uh, certain professional mistrust to them uh, on the part of the male pilots, but there was no, as far as I know, there was no downright, downright harassment. Whereas uh, as soon as I started interviewing women who were snipers, i.e. there were infantry, you know, corporals, privates, uh, it's completely horrific. It was completely horrific. Uh, they uh, Imagine uh, imagine uh, that you're an 18-year-old, you know, indoctrinated Soviet girl who, jo- who volunteers for the army and wants to fight with the Germans, wants to defend its, uh, her country. Um, she, she arrives in her military unit uh, and she, uh, she realizes that, that uh, she can be raped at any time. Uh, she has no protection. Uh, She's completely exposed. She she's completely left to her own devices. Her only protection are her comrades, uh, those who served in uh, in the units with a lot of other women, were the lucky ones. For for all the mothers, like like my great um, um, like my great aunt uh, told me, your best chance is to find one man, one officer that you will sleep with, who will protect you from the others. Um, it was it was horrific. Their existence uh, at the front was was horrific for for many of them. I I'd say the majority probably. Mm. And you know, one of the things that I learned, um, which was really fascinating to me, was that in at the end of the war, um, in coming home, many of the men suffered from PTSD um, or addiction. Um, course had mental breakdowns you know when you go through something so horrific like that but yet statistically the women did not and I wondered why you thought that was yes it's very interesting to you know to uh, um, well to try try and get your head around this even nowadays have we seen any women that that would open fire on on the other people uh, none of my veterans, female veterans, uh, you know, uh, came home and opened fire at people in a bus stop. Uh, they uh, nothing of the, uh, nothing of, the, of this had happened to them, although they had been through exactly the same uh, horrifying experiences as the men did. Um, I would not say that um, that they didn't suffer from the post-traumatic syndrome. It was just different in their case. Um, one of them, Claudia Loginova, told me how how she'd uh, jump up uh, jump up every night, wake up screaming every night, thinking they're going to be bombed, and um, and run around her, the house screaming. Uh, so they did suffer, but it was different, uh, and uh, and I've, I'm sure that that nowadays it's exactly the same story. Women just take uh, take it differently. And uh, also, women are able to focus on little things, 
and and have to focus on little things, you know. Every day when they came back from the war, they had to find food for their children and feed their families and uh, and tidy up the houses, which which sort of helps you to to focus on your on your today rather than the past. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, they went right back into a caretaker role. Um, they did right, and and I think that's probably a very good coping mechanism to put all of your attention on your family and your children. Absolutely, they're just absolutely extraordinary. You know, they came back uh, still in their early twenties, and uh, and a lot of them said to me that that they felt extremely strange with their contemporaries who had not been to the war. Mm. They felt uh, felt decades older than these other girls who hadn't seen what they had seen, and yet they came back. Uh, they started families, and they lived, you know, for for many decades and absolutely ordinary lives, like just like everybody else. Mm. That's amazing to me um, to to go through something like that and be, and be able to return to normal. Did did any of these women share with you? Um, that they, during the war, had killed another woman? Well, you know, um, this was not possible. You mean a woman from the from the enemy's army? Yes, yes. From the German army. This was not possible for the simple fact that there were no uh, no women serving in the German, uh, German army. But um, a very, very weird uh, thing happened. One of them, I I didn't speak to her personally, but I read her interview to a Russian newspaper that she gave just before she died. She was called Anna Sokolova, and she lived in Moscow. And and that in that interview, she described how uh, in 1943, as a very young girl, she was ordered to execute, to shoot um, a female German sniper who... Uh, as she said, looked a little bit like her and had exactly the same haircut as she did. Mm. And uh, and she told the journalist that she'd hesitated for some split seconds and then took that girl to the nearest gully. Mm. Um, and, uh, and we know uh, that this n- could not have been a true story, that that she made up this story. And, and I'm sure psychologists could tell us so much, you know, uh, if they'd analyze this story, you know, why did she, why did she feel the need to, you know, to make up the story like this? Yeah, I it's want really, really fascinating. Yeah, do you have any uh, opinions on it yourself? Um, I think that that in her soul, you know, seventy years after the war, she she wanted to continue taking revenge on the Germans. And that was her form, you know, her her imaginary form of still, still taking this revenge, hmm. still punishing the enemy. Yeah, um, you're listening to Women to Watch, and my name is Sue Rocco. I'm joined today by Dr. Luba Vinogradova, uh, the author of Avenging Angels and Defending the Motherland. Tell me, Luba, why do you think these stories were important to tell? I think. Stories about human experiences are very, very important to tell, and uh, and the reason why people people um, are so keen on 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 uh, on history books, especially books with personal stories, 
is that you try to find somebody to to identify with you. Sort of you try this story zone. You try to imagine how you would behave, how you would survive in this, you know, in these colossal calamities. Uh, and um, uh, for me, this story really started to affect me when I read about the parents, the mothers that saw their girls off to the war and um, and you know waited for the news. The post was not reliable. You wait for the news. Sometimes you never see your child again. Mm. Um, this is when the story really starts to affect you. Um, and I think from this point of view, it's important to tell this, to to tell about their mentality. It's not. I I don't believe, unfortunately, that people learn from history. People don't learn from history. History does not repeat itself. But we can learn about the human nature. We can learn about ourselves. Yes, I agree with you. You know, the the stories in in showing the resilience of these women, the human spirit, um, having experienced something like that uh, probably gives gives hope to others. and always Certainly. the yeah. Um, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about you and what gave you the confidence to take this leap of faith and and write these two books. We'll be right back. Welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm speaking today with Dr. Luba Vinogradova, the author of Avenging Angels and Defending the Motherland. You know, Luba, whenever you decide to write a book, it it takes a lot of courage. Um, and I'm wondering what gave you the confidence to to go for it. Thinking back, I I think the uh, in the first place it was my husband Martin that encouraged me to to write this. Uh, um, he's you know in whatever I do in life, he's a great inspiration and great encouragement, great support. Right now, for example, I'm I'm researching in New York, and he's baby babysitting all the kids in, in Tanzania, apart from in addition to his day job. That's um, a good husband you have. <laughs> absolutely. I'm very lucky. Yeah. And uh, and because Martin himself flies, he was great help also with all the technical side of uh, flying, which was to me what was, you know, e- extremely complicated. Mm. Um, I had no idea. And he even sent me flying in a, in a yak, a plane, uh, the closest we could find, uh, find to fight a plane which was very, very scary, I have to say. I'm not oh. at all like my heroines. It was it, it was a terrifying experience. Oh, my gosh. The loops. Yeah. But, um, but it's thanks to, to him, I think, that I started. And um, and um, the second person is my literary agent, Andrew Nuremberg, who who is uh, one of the cleverest, um, kindness, uh, kindest, um, funniest people that I know. Uh, with him, I know that I'm in safe hands. You know, mm. I can do anything. Is there? Are you already thinking about your next book? I I did not know very much about about um, um, the story of my own family in connection with the Holocaust. Um, my grandfather, who was a um, Belarusian uh, Jew, um, to him it was such a traumatic um, thing that he never ever spoke about this. He lost a lot of his family members in the Holocaust. <coughs> um, <coughs> But he never spoke about this, and uh, and whatever tiny snippets of information my mom had, she she never told us. Also, wanting to spare spare us from this, you know, really really horrifying thing. Um, and uh, only recently did I start to uh, 
start to discover some bits and pieces of information. And uh, and uh, as soon as it becomes personal, you you feel that you have to do something, you have to dig, you have to at least make sure that my children um, are, are able to learn not only about our own family's history, uh, about the Holocaust, uh, in which in which so many many family members died. Um, so so I I think I I might do something in this field, you know, something about civilians, um, something about simple people, you know, civilian people who did not fight in the war, who just tried to survive. Mm. That would be fascinating. And it's always, you know, so interesting to dig deep into our own family history. Um, It It teaches us so much about ourselves. You know, what would you say, um, how how did writing this book change you as a woman? I met very many, very many special women. You know, these 20-odd veterans that I interviewed, with some of them I, I became very close. And uh, it does teach you a lot. Um, my very favorite person who died a short time ago, and she was nearly, nearly 98 years old. She, she just turned 98, in fact, when she died. She was a bomber pilot. She, uh, she flew a dive bomber in the war. Wow. Uh, and and um, um, it's a truly amazing story. She, she got wounded when she was on a mission, and, and she... She was wounded very gravely on her stomach, and she managed to turn the plane back. She managed to to turn and fly back, and the plane was also hit. So it was very, very difficult to fly, and the navigator was giving her salts to smell so so she didn't faint. And at some stage, the navigator says uh, they're approaching another airfield where she could land. And as she started approaching to land, she saw somebody else taking off. So, so she had in this state, you know, bleeding uh, on a damaged plane. She she had to go up again and do another circle, you know. Oh not, my gosh! Wow. Not uh, not every healthy, you know, uh, male pilot would have been able to do this, and she did this. Wow. And she landed. She she turned off the two engines, and then she says uh, it was a complete blackout. She woke up in the hospital. And and uh, and can you believe this? Eleven months later, she was fly, uh, she was flying again. She she escaped back to the front. Oh my gosh! And and went on to live to be ninety eight years old. Yes, that that's and, an incredible story. I I so wish we had more time, Luba. Uh, but that's the end of the show. And um, sure. I wish you much success with with both of your books, Avenging Angels, Defending the Motherland. And I thank you for taking time with me today. Thank you very much. What an incredible interview that was, and, and the stories are, are very interesting. I highly recommend you go out and get her uh, both her books, Avenging Angels and Defending the Motherland, the stories of the young women of the Soviet Union in World War II that were both snipers and fighter pilots. Uh, we will have all that information on our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Women to Watch. Now, Sue Rocco. So let's get right into our health watch with our weekly contributor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie of Jefferson University Hospital, who's going to be giving us some additional information from last week, talking about reflux, um, the dangers, and and how we can treat it. Welcome back. Thank you. Well, years of reflux can cause inflammation in the esophagus, 
ulcers that can bleed, and even scarring, which can narrow the esophagus and make it hard to swallow. But aside from damage inside the esophagus, it can also cause hoarseness or a cough that can even disrupt your sleep. Or even if you <gasps> aspirate some of that fluid, you can get pneumonia. But I want to concentrate on Barrett's esophagus. When we do endoscopy, the lining of the esophagus should be uniformly pale pink. If we see patches of darker pink at the base of the esophagus, we guess it's from reflux, we biopsy those areas, and sometimes instead of seeing normal esophagus cells, we see normal intestinal cells. That's the definition of Barrett's esophagus. And on some occasions, those intestinal cells start to change in a precancerous way called dysplasia. So remember this word, dysplasia. The prefix DYS means slightly abnormal. So low-grade dysplasia means the cells are starting to change shape or size or color, and that's a warning that it could go on to high-grade dysplasia or more irregular, and then finally to esophageal cancer. Again, Barrett's is a condition which increases the risk for cancer of the esophagus, but most people do not develop cancer, probably below 1%, but you still need to be monitored on a regular basis with repeat endoscopy and biopsies to look for these precancerous changes. When should you have an upper GI endoscopy? Well, if you've had reflux symptoms for five years or longer, we definitely want to take a peek in there to screen for Barrett's esophagus. But there are certain alarm symptoms that make us say, we want to look in right away. If you've never had heartburn and you start to develop it in your mid to late 50s, age 60, we want to look. If you have dysphagia, there's that DYS again. That's abnormal swallowing or feeling like your food gets stuck. Iron deficiency anemia, or if there's hidden blood in your stool or evidence of bleeding. Weight loss, appetite loss. If you have vomiting, especially after eating, maybe your food's not going through well. Or if there's GI cancer, esophageal cancer in a first degree relative, that would be a parent or one of your siblings. And if we do find that high-grade dysplasia or even low-grade dysplasia, the early cell changes, we have a Barrett Center at Jefferson with an extraordinary leader, Dr. Anthony Infantilino. You can remember his name because his name starts with infant. Um, (laughs) And he has a baby face. No. Uh, (laughs) But he is so talented. He's extremely intelligent and a leading expert in the region and beyond. If he finds those abnormal cells, radiofrequency ablation, removes the cells through the scope, Prevents cancer, no surgery, voila. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Ritchie, for joining us. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone. And be sure to check out our website for all things related to the show at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.